Hello everyone and welcome to the second season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name's George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is episode 43, Greece in the year 800. In season one, we covered a lot of Greek history. So we thought we'd do a quick recap to bring you up to the state of the Greek people at the beginning of season two. We started with the Proto-Indo-Europeans and the migration down to the Balkan Peninsula, where Greece is located today. We covered ancient Greece, including the cities of Corinth, Athens, Thebes, and even Sparta. After a series of conflicts between the Greek polices, the Macedonians from the north conquered them all, and for a brief period of time, Greece was united under Philip of Macedon. When Philip died, his son conquered the Persian Empire, making Greece the most powerful entity on the planet. Immediately following the death of Alexander, the empire split up, and over the next two centuries, they fought amongst themselves. It wasn't until the Roman Empire came along and conquered the Greek kingdoms that the region found peace and unity. The Latins from Rome not only conquered Greek civilizations, but they also emulated the Greek culture and promoted the language. All of the ancient philosophy and texts were written in Greek, so naturally the elites of the Roman Empire learned the Greek language. The nobles in Rome even started to dress like the Greeks. I think there's a saying, the Romans conquered the Greeks, but the Greeks were the ones who conquered the Romans. Have you heard that before? Something like that. Yeah. It started off as a bitter conquest. There's no getting around that fact. Any Greek person living during the days of the Roman conquests would have seen it as the end of civilization as a whole. Roman legionnaires marched into the Peloponnese, butchered all of the fighting men, raped the women, burned the cities to the ground, and dragged all of the survivors away in chains, where they were forced to spend the rest of their lives in slavery. After Greece was subdued, the Romans invested heavily in the old city-states. Corinth was rebuilt by the Roman Emperor Caesar, and the temples to the old gods were restored, and the markets rebuilt, and the cities repopulated. If you were a Greek citizen living in Athens during the height of the Roman Empire, you might compare the prosperity to the days of the Athenian Empire before the Peloponnesian War. In Athens, the people dressed like Greeks. They spoke Greek. They worshipped Greek gods and studied ancient Greek legends and philosophy. But they did not call themselves Greek or Athenian. They called themselves Roman. Pax Romana, otherwise known as the Golden Peace, was a period of peace and prosperity. The closest period we have to compare this to in ancient Greece is the 50 years of peace that took place between the Persian Wars and the Peloponnesian War, or 480 to 430 BCE. Well, the Pax Romana is said to have started around the year 27 BCE and lasted up until the year 180 CE. 
That's 200 years of peace and prosperity. That's longer than any peace we have had in modern times. The last 200 years for us have seen the war on terror, the Cold War, two world wars, and a series of civil and revolutionary wars, not to mention Napoleon. 200 years is a long time for peace. Although Pax Romanda ended with a series of terrible invasions and civil wars, the Greek cities were more or less spared the atrocities of the western and eastern frontiers of the empire. In 267, a Germanic tribe managed to get as far south as Athens and storm the city walls, leading to a terrible sacking. The people of Athens were mustered up and fought off the invading Germans, and pushed them back out of the city and away from their home. It renewed the Athenian spirit as the city hadn't been attacked like that in 350 years when the Romans conquered the city. It was quite extraordinary for a city to go that long without being attacked. And what is even more impressive is the next time the city of Athens was attacked and conquered was almost a thousand years later during the Fourth Crusade. When the Western Roman Empire fell, the strong Greek population and culture became the dominant culture in the empire. The emperors and nobles all spoke Greek, even though Latin was considered the official imperial language. There were fewer and fewer Latins living in the empire. From the very first Roman Emperor Augustus in 27 BCE, the Roman emperors spoke fluent Greek. But it wasn't until Emperor Heraclius made the official language of the Roman Empire Greek that the empire finally left its Latin roots behind and became a more Byzantine Greek than Latin Roman Empire. It's still very important to note that the Byzantine Empire is the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire is, therefore, the Greek world. During the first decades of the 7th century CE, the Greeks and Persians went to war again in what is called the Great Byzantine-Sassanid War. With all of the armies pulled away from Europe to fight in Anatolia, the Slavs invaded Greece and pretty much settled the entire mainland and countryside. Only the major cities on the coast of the Aegean remained in Byzantine influence. And after the devastating war with the Persian Sassanid Empire, both superpowers in the region were weakened to near exhaustion. The plague had just wiped out the known world, and the Great War killed anyone remaining and destroyed all of the farmland on the frontier between the two great powers. Unfortunately, the poor peasants were the ones who suffered the most, and they were taxed greatly by the Persians and the Romans to try and make up for lost revenue from the costly war. And this poor state allowed the Arabs to storm out of the desert, and gobble up the entire Persian Empire and half of the Byzantine Empire, seizing all of Africa, the Levant, and Syria. And just like that, the great Byzantine Empire nearly collapsed. After the dust settled from the constant Arab invasions and the eventual defeats at the Siege of Constantinople in 717 and the Battle of Tours in 732, the Byzantine Empire settled into something that sort of resembles Greece and Turkey today. The southern tip of Italy and Sicily remained in Byzantine hands, 
as did the city of Rome. But the majority of the Italian peninsula was controlled by the Lombards and the Franks. And by the year 800, the Greeks control all of what we would consider the coastal region of mainland Greece, Sicily, southern Italy, as well as Thrace and Anatolia, as well as the islands of Rhodes and Crete. So now you know how big the Greek plain field is in the year 800. If you compare it to the size of the Roman Empire at its height, it's very small. Even when comparing it to the height of the Byzantine Empire, it feels pretty small. And I'm sure people living at the time felt like most of their land was conquered. But to be honest, this is still a decent chunk of land, and it's also a prosperous chunk of land. This is what some scholars refer to as the Byzantine Golden Age. They have consolidated now. They have more defendable borders and a homogenized culture. They don't have the wealth and resources of the Middle East like they used to, but they're still right on the edge of the Silk Road and control a very wealthy trading route between the East and the West. Most of the civilians who lived in small villages and cities on the frontier immigrated to the coastal cities on the Aegean Sea. This was the most secure place to live in order to avoid raids from barbarians, but also to remain close to the trade networks of the empire. So there were more and more people moving to cities like Athens, Thessalonica, and Constantinople. The new Greek emperors knew they had to change how they administered the empire. They couldn't treat everything like they did during the Roman Empire. The provinces had to be reorganized to deal with the borders between the Bulgars in the north, the Caliphate to the east, and the Slavs to the west. The first step was to do away with the provinces and to reorganize the empire into themes. Now, the themes are basically the same as a province, except for the fact that each theme would have its own army and defend its own borders. This made it easier for each section of the empire to defend against raiders and govern itself. Every theme was ruled by a strategos, who acted as the governor. This made them very powerful as they controlled a tiny kingdom of their own with their own army and collected their own taxes. The themes, starting in Anatolia, are as follows. The Armeniacon theme in the east, with its capital city of Amasia. The Bukalarian theme in the north, with its capital being the city of Ankara. The Apatamoitai theme, guarding the Asian side of the Bosphorus, opposite of Constantinople. The Opsikian theme in the west, beside the Sea of Marmara, with its capital in Nicaea. The Thracesian theme in the west, where most of Ionian Greece was located. The Kiberhiotai. <laughs> Forgive me for mispronouncing this one. The Kiberhiotai theme in the south, mostly protected against Arab ships venturing too far north. The Anatolikon theme. In the center of Anatolia, its theme was Amorium. 
On the European side of the Byzantine Empire, the Romans recaptured lost territory in central Greece and formed the themes of Thrace, covering the land immediately to the west of Constantinople, following the Black Sea up towards Bulgaria, the Macedonia theme on the top of the Aegean Sea, right beside Thrace, with the capital city located in the famous Roman city of Adrianople, the Thessalonica theme in the top left of the Aegean Sea. Its city was Thessalonica, the second most important city in the entire Byzantine Empire. The Hellas theme covered all of central Greece, including the city of Thebes, Athens, and the flat regions of Thessaly. And the Peloponnesus theme was created in 800, and its capital city was Corinth. Now, there were other themes created in southern Italy, Sicily, Sardinia, Crete, Cyprus, and even the Crimea. And many of these themes would get reorganized and broken up as new emperors came to power. There is an obvious downside to having such autonomous zones within your empire. It's a breeding ground for breakaway states. Some of the strategoi competed against each other. And sometimes they challenged the rule of Constantinople itself. This seems like a huge disadvantage to have so many possible provinces that could suddenly turn on the other, triggering a civil war. And there is no wonder as to why there were so many Byzantine civil wars. But there were ways for Constantinople to combat this threat. It started by limiting the powers of the strategoi as well as breaking up some of the more powerful themes into smaller ones. This meant the thematic armies were reduced in size and were spread more evenly throughout the empire. It's important to see just how the Byzantine Empire is consolidating its administration. These themes allowed for Byzantine control and dominance to return to these individual regions, to reclaim lost land from Germanic and Slavic refugees, but also to defend from raids as well as protecting trade. The Byzantines were fortifying their new borders and securing themselves from any more incursions. And this consolidation is what allowed the new empire to enter what is known as the Byzantine Golden Age. Something worth pointing out is that the Greeks were experiencing the Byzantine Golden Age around the same time as Western Europe was experiencing its Dark Ages. In the Byzantine Empire, there was a new sense of security, wealth, education, and trade. Another fun fact worth mentioning is that the Abbasid Golden Age and the Byzantine Golden Age occur around the same time. It's very logical to suggest that the Golden Age of Islam and Byzantium were only possible because the Umayyad Caliphate collapsed. Without the Umayyad Empire waging war against its neighbors, scholars could get back to work, trade could resume, and life got better. Constantinople in the West became the wealthiest and most culturally rich city in Europe, while Baghdad became the wealthiest and richest and most culturally diverse city in Asia. 
These two golden ages also coincide with something we call the medieval warming period. So there seems to be a series of events happening both geopolitical and climatic that are contributing to two golden ages. Maybe having two cultures experiencing a golden age at the same time amplified the effects on each other. The Greeks in the Byzantium Empire could trade with Arabs and and Persians in the Abbasid Caliphate, and that led to mutual wealth. Isn't there a lesson to be learned here? The Byzantine Greeks also took this time to reorganize their military. A lot had changed since the heyday of the Roman legionnaires. New tactics were needed to stay ahead on the battlefield. A separate army called the Tagmata was created and based in Constantinople. It was bigger, stronger, and had more elite warriors who acted with total imperial authority. Sort of like a federal army that was above the themes and the strategoia. If a small raid occurred on the frontier, it was dealt with quickly and immediately by the thematic armies. But if a foreign army marched upon the empire, the emperor sent in the Tagmata, a large army under the command of the emperor. This army was big enough to crush any foreign invader, but also any strategos that felt like rising up against their emperor. If the emperor ever went on the offensive, and he did, he would attack with the Tagmata, This way, none of the imperial themes would be defenseless. To further prevent mutiny from the armies and different themes in the empire, the thematic, that is the provincial armies, were mostly comprised of native Greeks from their own province, so they would be more likely to fight and defend their homeland if they weren't getting paid by the emperor. These soldiers were members of the community they were stationed in. They owned land and had families living there. The chances of them rebelling and raiding their own homes was very unlikely. That being said, the Tagmatic, that is the federal army, of the emperor had many foreign warriors serving in the ranks. The foot soldiers were given an upgrade as well. The legionnaire, the core of the Roman military, was redesigned into the Scutatoi. The Scutatoi infantry was very similar to the old Roman legionnaire, except the armor was better, the pike was sleeker, and the shields were replaced with an upside-down triangle-shaped shield. Without that bulky Roman shield, the new infantry was quicker and more agile. The archers were reformed into the Toxotai archers, and they were equipped with a composite bow. Now the composite bow is made up of pieces of bone and hoof and wood which were ground up and molded into a curved bow. The composite bow allowed a lot of energy to be stored up in the bow and fired arrows much farther and much faster. And this technique was mostly adopted from exposure to the Sassanids and the Huns who both used the composite bow. The cataphract or the Byzantine cavalry, quickly became the dominant military force. This heavy cavalry unit was decked out with head-to-toe armor that protected the rider from arrows and short, blunt weapons. The horses were also protected with head-to-toe body armor that even protected the eyes of the horse. It almost looked like the horses were wearing metal dresses, and this heavy cavalry carried a crossbow, sword, and a long spear or lance. 
This heavy armored soldier looked very similar to a medieval knight and was adapted to combat the hit-and-run tactics of the steppe tribes from the east. The soldiers were quick on the battlefield and were used to protect the Scutatoi infantry and Toxotai archers. The cataphracts waited on the flanks of the army while archers and infantry weakened the front lines before full charges broke through any weak spot on the enemy line and cut down the enemy from within. The Byzantine navy used the Dromon, which is almost identical to the trireme ship used in ancient Greece. It had two levels of oarsmen for fast maneuverability and was decked with two large sails. Some of these ships had up to 120 oarsmen. Some of these ships also had catapults mounted onto their decks, and at the bow of the boat was an iron spur that snapped the enemy oars when crashing into the side of an enemy ship. This spur crippled the enemy ship, giving the Byzantines time to set the ship on fire. For these ships were also equipped with Greek fire. Having Greek fire mounted on a dromon is basically saying that these triremes had flamethrowers. This oil substance was kept boiling at high pressure and was sprayed out of a nozzle, catching fire and spraying flames onto the enemy vessel. Greek fire was sticky and nothing put out these flames, not even water. The Greek fire floated on the surface of the water and kept burning. So we've talked about the state of the Byzantine borders surrounding the empire as well as the themes within. We've discussed the military and the navy. Now it's time to catch up on the state of the Byzantine religion. A lot has happened with the Greek religion over the past season. When we started, the Greeks had a pantheon of gods, with Gaia as the Earth Mother and Uranus as the Sky Father. Then came the Titans with Kronos and Prometheus. After the Titans came the Olympian gods with Zeus, Hera, Hades, Eris, Athena, and Poseidon. For over a thousand years, this was the religion of the Greeks. But the Greeks were in constant contact with the Middle East and were influenced by Egyptian philosophy and Persian Zoroastrianism. When the Roman Empire conquered Greece, they kept the Greek gods and attributed them to Latin gods. Around the year 50 CE, an old philosopher could go to the Agora in Athens and hear a priest talk about Zeus and Athena while a philosopher spoke about Stoicism and others speak of the god from the east, the god of the Persian Empire, Arura Mazda. After a word of a man coming back from the dead spread across the empire, an offshoot of Judaism became one of the fastest growing religions in the empire. This new religion, Christianity, really took form around the second century. However, the religion spread so far and so fast that several different views of the religion formed. The old gods of ancient Greece were no longer popular among the citizens. Christianity was here to stay. At first the Roman Empire didn't even care about the new religion, but when the Christians refused to sacrifice to the patron of God of the Roman Empire, Jupiter, the emperor blamed Christians for the bad things happening to the empire. Soon the Christians were persecuted, and several thousand were executed after refusing to sacrifice. This only fueled the spread of Christianity, and further fueled the persecutions. 
When Emperor Constantine painted the symbol of the early Christian religion to the shields of his legionnaires and won a victory in battle, securing the Western Empire for himself, he accepted the Christian religion as the one true faith and converted to Christianity, although he held off his baptism until he was on his deathbed. Emperor Constantine wanted Christianity to become the official religion of the Roman Empire, so he called a council and sent for bishops from all across the empire to come together and agree to a single doctrine as the religion had spread so far and so fast, many Christians couldn't agree on the main guy, Jesus Christ. The emperor's orders before the council was simple. I don't care what you agree to, so long as you agree to it. What they needed to agree on was the nature of Christ, as well as the date of Easter for some reason. You wouldn't think this was a big deal, but people were already killing each other in the streets over this disagreement. The real question was, when Jesus was created by God, did God create Jesus from nothing, and therefore Jesus never existed before his creation? Or, did God create Jesus out of himself, meaning that Jesus was part of God, and therefore always existed? Needless to say, the council couldn't agree. Some were very close, but there were many who left angrier than when they entered the council. And from this first council came the Nicene Creed. However, Arianism and Monophysitism continued to spread throughout the empire. The Germans tended to convert to Arianism, and the Eastern Christians along the border of the Persian Empire tended to turn to Monophysitism. In 381 CE, another council was held this time in Constantinople. In this council, the creation of the four exarchs established the four pillars of Nicene Christianity. The exarch in Rome, the Pope, the exarch in Constantinople, the Patriarch, the exarch in Alexandria, the Coptic Pope, the exarch of Antioch, the Patriarch of Antioch. These four exarchs started off as equals. Each patriarch was ahead of their own church in the super-wealthy cities of the Roman Empire. However, the empire did not remain intact, and Islamic armies conquered two of the four exarchs. The Coptic Pope and Syrian Patriarch have now occupied regions of the Islamic Caliphate. So only a few centuries after their foundation, and already there were only two left, the Pope in the West and the Patriarch in the East. Since Rome had basically collapsed, it was much of a prestigious place. Constantinople was the real center of the world, and therefore the Patriarch was the top man in the Christian Empire. The Pope was completely surrounded by Arian-Germanic barbarians who did not recognize the Pope. There was one Germanic tribe who converted to the Catholic faith of the Pope, and therefore protected the Pope in Rome from the Arians. In exchange for legitimacy among the Western tribes. This gave rise to the Franks and subsequently the Western Roman Catholic Church. After the failed siege of 717 CE, the Byzantines entered a period of iconoclasm 
where paranoid religious zealots ran around the city smashing and burning religious pictures and sculptures or any statue they could find. This behavior of self-destructing culture horrified the Pope in the West, as well as several others in the East. Islam itself was a religion that forbids creating images of God, and so was the Jewish religion. It was only natural that it would have affected the Christian population in the East, having been exposed to Islam and Judaism. However, the Pope and Catholics in the West didn't have this exposure, and in fact they loved their artwork and their sculptures, so they were naturally appalled at the behavior of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Now the catalyst for the church in the West was the moment Irene of Athens became the emperor of the Romans, because the Pope in Rome used this as an excuse to crown Charlemagne as the emperor. They claimed that a woman could not be the emperor, and therefore the seat of the empire was vacant, and Charlemagne could fill this seat. Now we arrive at a point in our story where the Pope in the West has crowned his own emperor, challenging the authority of the Patriarch and the Emperor in Constantinople. Also by this period, the different rifts in Christianity, such as the Monophysites in the East and the Arians in the North and South, were either conquered by the Arab Caliphate or were converted or killed by Charlemagne. Looking at a situation like this on paper, you would think this was the best time for the East and West to come together. But in reality, the small divide was growing bigger, and the rift between the Pope and the Patriarch was growing deeper and wider. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.